drawing room over here. Oh, hey, come on in. What happens when the details of our past are set aside and forgotten? What does it mean to reclaim the traumas of history and find the forgotten stories and people that were left behind? In Luke Stegman's book, Amnesia Road, he looks at the experiences of Australia and Spain and the way that those histories talk to each other. It's won several awards, most recently the Nib Literary Awards, and Luke joins me in the drawing room. Welcome and congratulations. Hello, Patricia. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be with you. Take us to the beginnings of this book uh, for you. You quote the historian Raymond Evans, scores of skeleton, he wrote, bleaching in the noonday sun in the scrubby coast ranges adjoining the scene of that awful murder. He was speaking of mass killings in Queensland in the 1850s, but you say it could easily be about Spain in the 1930s. How do these two parts of history join together for you? They joined together, Patricia, because uh, Australia and Spain are the two countries where I've essentially divided my adult life between the two. And I've been particularly interested in how each of our two countries are coming to terms with their very difficult and troubled pasts, particularly because over the last few decades uh, in both countries, there's been uh, a lot of attempts to come towards a better, perhaps fairer understanding of the past through truth-telling, through research, through reckoning, through documentation, through storytelling, and also through legislation. So there's been the, the, the question of you know, how do we deal with, with a very difficult past has been very much uh, in the forefront of debate in both the countries that I call home. And so I was attracted from that angle at the beginning to to do some more thinking and writing about that. So how do you see this book? It's about the history, but it's also about the way we understand or remember that history, isn't it? It is. It is. And this is one of the things, if it was just a matter of narrating the way in which in different countries, and of course, you know, as I say, you know, Australia and Spain are the two countries where I divide my life. But as you know, there's any number of other countries, South Korea, Argentina, South Africa, Chile, and so on, that, that, that are going through these processes as well. If it was just a matter of uh, the countries uh, coming to terms with those pasts, uh, I think that would be a fairly commonplace story. What I'm also interested in is the way in which interpretations of the past are being used to dif- uh, put to bl- put different political purposes. Um, and this doesn't mean revisiting, you know, what for many would be the tedious history wars of the 1990s, because I think Back then, the question was more about, you know, can our history be interpreted one way or the other? Did certain things happen or did they not happen? Which is the way that we look at history? I think we're at a point now, or you would hope in Australia, we're at a point now where the facts of the past are beyond dispute. The question now is, as a society, to what use do we put those facts and how might those facts be that's sometimes manipulated for political purposes, and, and that's the process which really interests me. And I, in the book, I go into the way in which that sort of dovetails in with the way in which history is is dealt with uh, in social media as well, which is kind of another whole uh, branch of what the book explores. You're right that if there is a recurring theme in much of history, it, it is that paradise is built on the bones of others. 
And mm. when you're talking about the facts of the past, how do we begin to make sense of that in the present? How do we, how do we complicate the history in a way that it deserves? I think the most important thing is to look absolutely unsparingly at the facts of what happened. And that is why uh, in both countries, but more particularly in Spain, in the case of Spain, I'll explain why in a moment, I had to deal with some very, very disturbing material, uh, but I was determined not to turn my head away from it. I say in the case of Spain, perhaps more than Australia, even though being Australian, the Australian case is perhaps a bit, a bit closer to me personally, but uh, the incidents that I describe in Spain are closer to us in time. They're 80, 90 years ago compared to 150, 170 years ago. Uh, in the case of Spain, there's much more documentation. There were reporters on the ground. There was photographic evidence, a lot of these things which didn't exist for the history of the Australian part, I write specifically about the southwestern corner of Queensland, the state that I'm from. So the first thing is to put aside these history wars and say, these are the facts, this is the terrible thing, these are the terrible things that happened. We've got to take that as the starting point. From then on, we were in a position to move forward, I believe. How does this photographic evidence and that documentation change our understanding? Well, I think it brings us, uh, it probably makes it a little more visceral because when we, when we talk about, when we research and we investigate what happened in frontier wars in, in, uh, in Australia, we listen to oral testimony of Indigenous people, to an extent a lot of it is still left to our imagination because we're talking about, in the case of southwestern Queensland, the 1840s, the 1850s, and a lot of what's come through to us is, is really the, 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 the tiniest or the barest of threads, and we have to tug on those threads lightly and slowly try and pull the facts towards us. Whereas in 1930s Europe, it's a, it's a lot more blatant. It's a lot more documented. It's a lot more written about. Uh, and even to the extent that some of the people just uh, are still alive who witnessed those times. You mentioned the frontier wars, but you push back mm. strongly against the idea that the dead in both Australia and Spain were victims of war. Why, why is that important? I think it's important because I wanted to, um, I guess, redefine the idea of victims of warfare because we talk about the civil war in Spain and, of course, there are elements of clear elements of war there, and we talk about the frontier wars in Australia as it's a common term. But what I wanted to say is that in fact, the vast majority of victims were actually just victims of random acts of violence and murder. Um, when we talk about war, we think about two contending parties, uh, not necessarily on equal footing, but nevertheless, we think of two sort of contending or conflicting parties. Whereas in, uh, in many of the villages, and I, when I talk about the Civil War Spain, I talk about the, the massacre and a number of massacre of civilians in a number of small villages in southern Spain. Or if we talk about what happened in southwestern Queensland, out in the regions beyond and around Kalamulla, Thargaminda, Charleville, those sorts of places, we're talking about the murder of innocent people. It's not war. Um, these are not people who had deliber deliberately taken up arms against an opposition. These are people who were um, attacked, murdered and eliminated, and they were entirely innocent. So I don't like using really one of the, as you say, one of the things I push back against in the book is this idea that these were 
victims of war. They weren't. They were victims of murder. On Radio National, I'm Patricia Carvellis. Luke Stegman is my guest in the drawing room, and we're talking about his book, Amnesia Road. You note that this book began as an act of listening. So who were you listening to? What were you listening to? I was listening to people in both countries. Um, I was listening to, in a, in, a, in a way which is kind of intangible, I guess, I was listening to the landscapes and the country because, as I say at the beginning, uh, and I, in fact I quote uh, Stan Grant at the beginning there, we're talking about how anybody who's travelled for any length of period through the Australian landscape will sense that the landscape is in some way or the nature around them is in some way talking to them. I don't mean that in terms of an obvious and blatant conversation, but listening in this sense really means more more generally um, observing. Uh, And so it was a matter of going to, for example, going into the landscape and observing it very acutely, listening to the people who are in those landscapes Listening also by going to small town libraries and digging through their archival material, which in some cases, there's little towns in southwestern Queensland which have, you know, at the back of their municipal libraries, these little um, filing cabinets which have the most extraordinary historical archive material, which, you know, is sort of dusty and appears never to have been looked through. And so listening is also observing those materials. Of course, listening was also talking to Indigenous people in Australia. It was talking to uh, historians and people uh, on the ground uh, in Spain as well. So it was about, not about me saying, here it is, this is what it's all about. It was about saying, I want to know. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit quietly and I'm going to listen and observe. And when I think I have something that is perhaps interesting to tell, then and only then will I tell it. That's how the book came about, Patricia. As you mentioned, in the Australian context, you're looking at southwest Queensland, which you describe as overlooked. Why has it remained overlooked and what drew you uh, to that place? Well, I I travelled a fair bit in southwest Queensland simply because, uh, well, I'm from Queensland, although I'm from the southeast of Queensland, and I've, I've actually spent a lot of my life not in Queensland, but I, I sort of came home, I guess, about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, and I decided that I wanted to explore my state a lot more. And I found the southwest corner uh, particularly intriguing. I found it a particularly beautiful, almost heartbreakingly beautiful uh, set of landscapes: the the, the Mulga and the and the Channel Country. And the more I travelled there, and I looked to read books about the social, cultural, political history of that area, I found that there was so little, so little had been written about. Um, and when it came to actually finding out about what had happened to the Indigenous people, there was even less material. So in a sense, that absence simply um, got my curiosity going. And I think also, you know, we think about the, 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 the classic places of tourism in Australia and Southwest Queensland just is not one of them. And you know, I, I'd lost track of the number of people who, you know, in the years that I was researching this book, I said I was travelling in those areas. I said, what on earth do you want to go out there for? And, you know, part of that country is, is a place that people might travel through when they're on the way to somewhere like Birdsville or out to the Dig Tree or somewhere like that. But really it's not 
places, you'd be hard-pressed to find people who would go to somewhere like Kanamala or Thargavinda or Charleville purely for tourism or, or for the landscape. Some people do, but but not many. So I felt it's a very neglected corner of, of the state. So what happens to a place with unanswered questions like this, with a history that hasn't been acknowledged or settled? What does it do to a place and to the people who are there? That's a very interesting question and it's a difficult one to answer um, because, I, I, well, I don't think there's one answer to that question. I, um, I think it affects different people in different ways and one of the things that I'm talking about in the book is that for the vast majority of people, history plays no part in their life. Uh, they don't ever really stop to think about uh, the land they're standing on or the street they're walking down or the fields that they're in or the river they're standing beside. People rarely uh, stop and consider the role of history. You know, I say in the book I, uh, I ask myself what I call a simple but bewilderingly complex question, which is where did the, where did the present come from? And one of the things that, that most intrigued me was the fact that for most people, the sorts of questions I think that I ask in the book, uh, they're not everyday questions. Um, you know, most people don't trouble themselves too much with thinking about the past. So I think, it, you know, if there's an objective of this book, it, it's kind of to just be another drop in the ocean or another grain of sand, if you like, um, in this larger project of mainly Australia, but also to, to a lesser extent Spain, of, of having more and more people a little more aware of the history that has gone before us. Should history be a bigger part of our lives then? You say a lot of people don't bother themselves. The present is often taxing enough, but but should we start, should more people start troubling themselves with the past? I think they should, certainly, because history is not, all, not only about bad things um, and there's a lot in the past to be ashamed of. There's also an enormous amount to be proud of. So it's not... It's not only uh, um, a question of having to look into history to understand the, the, the darker parts. I think in terms of thinking about history, the more we know about history, and this is one of the key themes of the book, is that history takes time, um, it takes patience, and it takes effort. History doesn't come in easy little packaged bundles, the sort of things that you can transmit via social media. And I think if we're, uh, the more we understand about our history, the less we'd be surprised by political, cultural, social events, uh, you know, changes, conflicts, revolutions. Excuse me, a lot of these things take us by surprise, but, you know, they've all happened before in one guise or another. And I think the more we know about history, the more we study history, uh, the more we're prepared to face these things which often catch us by surprise, but they only catch us by surprise if we haven't been paying attention to the past. Take us to Spain and to the Paterna Municipal Cemetery where you saw a recovery of the dead and the memorial afterwards such as it was. What what did you see there and what did that acknowledgement of the past do to the present there? There's been over the last decade and a half, uh, there's been an enormous... Uh, amount of uncovering the dead in the literal sense in Spain, the, the uncovering of bodies from mass graves 
uh, people who were executed and thrown into mass graves in the 1930s and 1940s. And, and I was, uh, Patana is a, is a little town close to where uh, my Spanish family lives, and I visited there because I knew that there was an excavation going on, and I visited a number of times over a period of months. And um, I was, I won't say privileged or fortunate, because that's certainly not the right word, but I was able to see the process whereby a group of young um, archaeologists slowly, painstakingly dug down and very tenderly raised the bones of these people out uh, of the earth. And it's quite extraordinary because day by day you see the level of the earth drops and it's as if these stained dark yellow skeletons were emerging from the earth. And, of course, there's something obviously uh, horrific and brutal. There's also something slightly beautiful and peaceful about it as well, that these people are finally going to be laid to rest. Of course, you can't avoid noticing the obvious things. For example, when you find hands that have been tied together, uh, many of the skeletons, when they emerged, had bullet holes. So it's, it's uh, as I say, it's, it's shocking, but it's also you feel a sense of gratitude. Firstly, that you're able to witness the work that the young generation is doing in that country, um, but also gratitude that these people are going to emerge, they'll be DNA identified and the families will be able to put them into it, bury them in a, in a family niche. And there will be hopefully then some greater level of peace for those families. Politics and tribalism have been a big part of the story and how we got this silence in the first place. What is it doing now to the way we explore and, and explain history? You say that you don't want to return to, to the history wars of the 90s, and uh, we all thank you for that, but is it possible to avoid it? One would certainly hope so, but I do worry um, that you know, I observe a lot of uh, debates uh, about or disagreements, there's probably more, more disagreements than debates about history on social media, particularly on a platform like Twitter, which is known for its for its sort of snarling uh, mm. argumentation all too often, not always, of course, but all too often. And I think I think social media has, and the digital world generally has, has helped that or has seen people take more and more reductive positions uh, regarding history in terms of good and bad versions of history. I think positions become more entrenched, more radicalised, not only in relation to history, of course, as you, as you would have observed, Patricia, it's just more generally uh, about, all sort of social and cultural questions. People are more polarised, more radicalised. And I'm not sure what we can do about that. I, I, what I argue for in the book is that if people are going to take radicalised positions about the past, as long as at least we're working from a baseline of facts about what actually happened. Um, and as I say, I think the debate are moving on now more about how you interpret what happened Whereas perhaps 20, 30 years ago, the debate, the debate was more, well, did that happen or didn't it happen? I think we're beyond those debates now, thankfully. Uh, and it's more given that what happened, how do we now put those facts to the service of better understanding our nation's history? But you're right, tribalism, it's there. I mean, any, any observer of social media would, would fear that it's, it's there more than ever. And seeing as I write about Europe and I study European history more generally and there's very, very worrying signs of, of all sorts of tribalism re-emerging strongly through Europe now. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. You're very welcome, Patricia. It's been a pleasure. Luke Stegman has been my guest in the drawing room. His latest book is Amnesia Road, and he was the winner of the Mark and Yvette Moran Nib Literary Award.